the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast. Hey folks, this is Jason Bond in the studio in Stoneville, Mississippi. Today I've got Dr. Tom Allen. Tom. Afternoon. Dr. Don Cook. How y'all doing? Good to have y'all here. Tom is still working every other week. I'm working remotely. It's like a every other third day situation. Uh, well, I hadn't seen you in like ten days. I have yeah, seriously. So I guess not that's been. the last podcast we did. I haven't been out of the house in ten days. Don, how was it south of town during the great weather event? It was rather chilly. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you completely cut the water off this time? Yes, at the road. Where else? Okay. I am not dealing with busted pipes and, and oh, water, water it, flowing through the ceiling and all that kind of crap. I get it. I told my wife, I said, we'll just, whatever the water bill is, I don't care. We're running, we're running water. I've never had to deal with that, but I've have helped other folks deal with the aftermath. It's completely, you're looking at four to six months oh, to get everything mess. fixed. And you dealt with it there one year. I mean, that's been like 10 years ago now, but we came home from that meeting that time and you had, oh, how did you have a bus that time? Oh, that was in the yard. That was nothing. Oh, okay. Now, I couldn't remember. That was that. a water line in the yard that busted out, and then my buddy came over with his tracker. We're going to dig it up and fix it, and he hit the sewer line in the process. Oh, <laughs> so it just turned into a circus. But, no, I've never had anything in the house, and will do everything in my power not to have that. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I can't imagine the word. I, I just kept waiting to see a drip where, you know. Oh, it wouldn't have been a drip. It would have been a gusher. Yeah, well, you know what you want to be like, like drip through the ceiling yep. kind of drip, the initial the initial drip. And, Sean, your house is 180 years old. so we, We've got an old house. We, we ran the water. I, honestly, that house has never experienced those temperatures before. I was impressed. Impressed. You didn't want to walk around on the hardwood floors barefoot, but. I mean, seriously, I sent you that link to that that website with the records for Greenville. This was a the third time in my lifetime it's been that yeah. cold. So, I mean, 1989 and then 1996 were the years that several records were set uh, for temperatures, high, you know, low highs or low lows. And, and I, I didn't live here in 1996, so... I don't remember it, but I remember 1989 for sure. It was cold. Me neither. And growing up all the years I did up north, I only remember one time when we ended up with frozen pipes and my parents were grabbing a hairdryer to go at it, and they fixed it. Wasn't a problem. But that was like a negative 40 below. Well, uh, the houses are built differently. They're, they're built right. <laughs> with <think>? this. In, <laughs> they're, well, they're, they're built very different, Don. And we, we actually you have basements up there. Not a lot of folks have basements. So, so my septic system with the sprinklers, you're saying that's not Minnesota <laughs> no, approved? No, 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 no. <laughs> I tell you what, the older I get, the more, the less I like this. I was thinking about looking for property, real estate in an equatorial zone. How much firewood did you burn? <laughs> uh, I'm off the firewood. I'm I'm gas fireplace now. Okay, I didn't know that. I burnt fifty gallons in four days. Oh, I don't even want to know uh, what ours were. We did it. We did just coincidentally. The guy came and filled the tank up a week or two before it started turning cold. So we we were good. But yeah, I'd, I'd hate to go out there and see now. Supposedly we might get a little bit more next week. At least we're going to get a lot of rain. It looks like. Yeah, they're talking about end of this week, first of next week. You know, several inches of rain. It's already a muddy, nasty mess out there. All right, so 
answer me this, y'all, professional opinion. Is that slushy mud after the snow and ice, that mud seems different than regular yes. mud. What's up with that? I have two thoughts, unless Tom's got a thought. No, I was going to let you finish. Uh, one is, and Jeff Gore brought this up, is when all that snow and ice melts, it melts slowly, and it doesn't run off, so it just percolates in. Therefore, it gets really mushy. My other thought is, with that ground freezing, does that impact the soil structure? See, that's what I thought. In in, in those pores, that water in those yeah, pores expands expanding. out. Yeah, that's what I because, thought. Because, you know, ground that was concrete hard gets mushy after this. Yeah, just nasty, yep. slushy, gooey mud. All right, folks, what we wanted to talk about today with Tom and, and Don was seed treatment. So we didn't get to do a lot of meetings this year. I don't guess we got to do any meetings. Uh, we were going to do the Delta Ag Expo last week, and that's been postponed. Uh, so we didn't really get to talk to anybody, share any information like we ordinarily would have done uh, in, in any other year. So we want to do a, a series of episodes, get some folks in here and, and talk about the different things that you ought to be thinking about this time of year. So Tom and, and Don, uh, I'm just going to try to stay out of the conversation and, and let them talk about it. But but seed treatment. Don, you mentioned before we hit record that you know, most of those decisions are already made at this point, and, and that's a fact. Tell folks, you know, what do you need to be thinking about when you're considering seed treatments, even if you're not talking about, you know, what's going on the last week of February. Maybe maybe rewind to sometime in the fall, you know, when you are booking seed, making those type of requests. Tom, why don't you kick us off on that? Inevitably, I end up with a tremendous number of questions, even rolling into this time of year, even though we are at a point where people have already made those decisions because they've ordered a specific variety or hybrid that already has some seed-applied fungicide package on there. And I end up with lots of questions about overtreating. Well, should we add any additional product to that? And usually what I say to folks is, I don't know that I'd go with more fungicide, but I'd look to see what's available on that seed that you already purchased. And I tend to be as conservative as possible because I know that we're stacking a tremendous number of products on there. And I would say from the fungicide standpoint, the corn situation, in the years that I've been in Mississippi, I think most of the corn seed applied fungicide packages that are there are doing the job they need to do. I've only... If I, if I can recall while I'm sitting here talking, I think I've only ever witnessed one field situation where there was an issue in the field that was not necessarily a fungicide failure as it related to something either being on the seed or not being on the seed. But more often than not, corn comes out so rapidly that the bulk of the fungicide products that they put on to seed that you're purchasing when you purchase a specific hybrid are doing the job that you need them to do. You're managing the rhizoctonia issues and the pythium issues, which would be associated with cooler, wetter soils uh, when you plant corn early. So for the most part, corn fungicides, I think we're doing a really good job. Uh, I almost rarely do I get conversations about seed-applied fungicides on corn. More often than not, it's mostly related with soybeans. I mean, at the end of the day, all the corn is planted early. Even if you stretch out into early April, you're still going to have pretty cool soil temperatures relative to like a, a cotton or a peanut planting date. So, I mean, you're still going to have relatively cool temperatures, you know, maybe warmer than early March planted corn. But so, 
is it safe to say for corn? You just just a blanket statement that you ought to have a seed applied fungicide on corn seed? Absolutely. I, I would never suggest that somebody plant naked corn seed. That's that's dangerous. And, and one mode of action or multiple modes of action? Or you want multiple modes of action. Okay. And typically what I tell folks is make sure that you've got one of the methanoxum or metal axle, which are near isomers of one another. Those would be your pythium products. And then something that's going to get you good rhizoctonia control. And there's a slew of those fungicides. Something like one of the QOIs, azoxystrobin, really good rhizoctonia product. And most seed-applied fungicide packages on corn have both of those present. You're getting a pythium and a rhizoctonia product. Are those point of sale or are those by the manufacturer? Everything that I see comes from the seed facility of whatever seed company with something on it. It's, it's the same way for fungicides. It is all but impossible to buy corn field corn seed that does not have something on it. I mean, they just won't they just don't sell it anymore. And so then the individual stuff would be what you referred to earlier, Tom, with the overtreatment? Well, they, there's different packages that when you order, you can order, well, I want these two fungicides and this insecticide at this rate. But if you go to the co-op or whatever and say, I want a bag or whatever, it's got something on it. You may not be able to pick and choose the, tr- the seed treatment package you want, you know, at that point. But if you booked it October, November, December, and, you know, ordered it, you can order pretty much what you want. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and I, was, I would just add, I don't recall anybody ever asking if they w- could add or over-treat an additional fungicide on corn seed, at least in my experience. Occasionally, you will get some insecticide over-treatment if it's got the you know, the base rate, the lowest rate, and uh, somebody, or that's, you know, what they bought, what was there when they went and picked it up, and they felt like they needed, you know, a little bit more because they were planting into a bunch of residue or, or something like that. Uh, uh, but every, virtually all the corn comes with an insecticide. It, and it's very apparent when you ride down the road because it's not like it's, 30 years ago when you ride by a field that's been gorilla stomped by southern corn rootworm and it cuts 15 bushels an acre, you just don't see that anymore. What's the visual of gorilla stomp? Flat field. That's at least that's the first knee-jerk thought that came <laughs> what, to my what mind. He, before he said gorilla stomp, I was you know kind of picturing erratic, you know, bad stand, that that kind of visual. And then he said gorilla stomp. I'm like, okay. It's, caught caught me off guard, that. too. Totally caught me <laughs> off guard. For corn. We're go, we're going every sack with a yeah a fungicide and an yes. insecticide and and depending on the, the situation you're planted in planting into uh, if you have a history of issues or you're going in a lot of residue or you're burning down you know right close to planting or planting into green stuff uh, I know people that some folks want a a mid range seed treatment or more which you may have to over-treat to get, or you may have to run it in furrow to supplement that. What about cover crops? Does that change the game? Yes, in my opinion. It's, you know, planting into green tissues, whatever, it depends on. Some of it will depend on what plants are out there. If you're planting in the legumes, whether it be, or broadleaves, whether they be naturally occurring or, you know, a cover crop, 
that can definitely influence uh, what you might want to do. Uh, in that situation, if you're planting into it green, I would consider at least thinking about a high, something above the base because I have seen differences. It may not occur every year, but it can. Uh, the thing you have to remember about seed treatments and insecticides, those insects have to feed on that plant to get a dose of it to die. Well, if there's, say, 50 out there in an acre, it's not, I mean, they chew a little bit and die. It's not that big deal. But if there's 10 million, the, they may, it may kill them, but they may damage the plant because there's so many of them. Yeah. And a lot of it is based on your, your history with that field. If you've been it, doing this for a while and you've seen, you know, your yields go down, look like I've seen a little more damage then you might want to consider going to a higher rate or supplement it with an infer. So we mixed some generalities with seed treatments and in, kind of into that discussion with corn, and, and that's cool. But let's let's kind of move on to our other crops uh, that that are common in our state. So what do y'all think about soybeans and seed treatments? Because it, in my mind, if I hear y'all talk about seed treatments, I'm expecting – you know, soybeans is probably the number one thing that I'm going to expect to hear y'all talk about. Tom, why don't you start and tell us about fungicides and soybeans? I'd say this winter in particular, I've had more questions from farmers and consultants that want to do their own seed treating, that have purchased a seed treater, are choosing their own products, and are making those applications themselves prior to planting, which... I think there's, and in fact, over the last two to three years, I've certainly had a substantial increase in the number of people that are wanting to do that. Similar to my comments on corn, something fairly conservative that's going to manage the early season pest issues. Something that gets pythium, so methanoxin or metalaxyl, something that manages rhizoctonia, something along the order of azoxystrobin, and I know that's just a pretty general statement. There are numerous products that will do that. I won't rattle them all off because they're lengthy and, and cumbersome. Um, and then from that standpoint, quest, people tend to ask the question on rates. And what I typically suggest is uh, a lot of that can be based on history. A lot of that will be based on planting date when you're planning on planting. But I tend to suggest something along the high rate range to make sure that you're getting good protection because if you're one of the farmers that tends to plant earlier you may encounter some cooler wetter soil uh, type situations and you want as much protection as possible um, and then from there the bulk of the questions uh, that I see there are lots of additional fungicide products on those seed when you purchase that, depending upon who you purchase that from. And usually the questions I get are, should I add more? Should I add something additional? Do you know what's in this particular product offered by this specific retailer? And usually what I suggest to people is make sure you're checking to see what's in there. Make sure you're tailoring that from a field by field basis, because in some cases, uh, and my thought tends to gravitate towards seed applied nematicides, uh, you may have seed-applied biological treatments on there to manage nematodes. And in the years that we've done nematicide work in Stoneville, which is for the better part of the last five to eight years, 
the bulk of those products may be effective at really low nematode numbers, but they're not effective in most of the field situations that we have because we have such high nematode numbers uh, in a lot of our farm field situations. Now, with that statement in mind, if you're talking about an alligator clay, that's not a field situation that's going to have a nematode issue. I'm talking your silt loams, your sandy loam soils, and in those instances, backing up those suggestions or thoughts moving forward need to really be based on actual soil samples to determine how many nematodes are present and which specific nematode you have. So, again, you're referring to nematicide for soybean, right? Correct. Okay. Yep, seed-applied nematicides for soybean. I mean, just gen- in general, we associate nematodes with cotton. Uh, by the way, I know they're a huge pest to the other crops too, but just, you know, in general, we, we usually track those two together. All right, Don, so what about our insecticides for soybean? Beans, you have options. I mean, you can, unlike corn, you can buy see- soybeans with nothing on them. And uh, in my opinion, it's very situationally dependent. We've got, I don't know how many years of data where, you know, a seed treatment, you know, made money 80% of the time. Uh, and uh, a lot of situations, that, especially now, as is, is things that went, gen- some things that went generic, the cost is way down. So it's easier to make a profit on them. Uh, I'd say if you're planting May 1st and it's clean and you disc it twice, you know, and then rode it up and drug it off, you'd probably get away without it. If you're planting in a bunch of residue, vegetation, uh, green vegetation for sure, I would say don't plant a seed without something. I do some things that, you know, growers don't just to, you know, see how things perform. In other words, worst case scenario. And there's situations that I don't think are that our seed treatment rates are enough. Now, will most growers get into this? No, because I'm just trying to find the limitations of it. Early, a lot of residue, a lot of vegetation, I would say yes. Uh, you get in more where, you know, the, you've got perfect planting weather and everything's, you know, the ground, ground's clean, been de- worked and uh, you don't have a history, you probably get away without it, but that's, that's your choice. I think this year, you know, you talked about planting into residue for soybeans at least you're driving around i think we're going to plant into more clean fields this year than we have you know with the exception of the fields the last couple of years i had to get worked in the spring but the the stale seed bed stuff that that got done i think a lot of it's pretty clean with our fall burn down programs that we did you know our, our other big crop in the delta we can, we can talk about rice or we can talk about cotton cotton is a no-brainer you you almost have to have some insecticide. We've had issues in the past with some of the neonicotinoids. Uh, Gaucho is uh, one of the main ones left. Uh, If you're running Aris, which is uh, Gaucho and Thiodicarb, which used to be Larvin, if you're old enough to remember that, that typically stands alone. Uh, I know a lot of folks who are running, you know, imidacloprid by itself have been adding orthene to it and have been very happy. The other thing I would say, and I'm getting off track on this a little bit, but if you have to spray thrips, and thrips is what we normally go after in cotton with, you know, any kind of infer or seed treatment. If you have to spray thrips and you spray them with orthene and you don't control them, do not spray them again because there is some indication that we have 
resistance to orthene in various places, particularly in West Tennessee. So if you have a failure or you don't feel like it worked as well, one, call us. We'll try to make a collection. Two, don't spray them again with 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 orthene because if it didn't work the first time, it's probably not going to work the second. No, just a breath of fresh air with the well resistant thrips. That's, that's kind of why I let Don go first. Usually, yeah. people call me Doctor Doom. Well, so would what, you rather be so with surprised away. about it? <laughs> would you rather know the train's coming or be surprised by it? You're right. I, I agree. So, Tom, on on our fungicides, which obviously. Sealing disease can be a scourge in cotton, so how do we protect our Seedling cotton seedlings against is that? A, is a major scourge in cotton, and, and I would make similar comments to Don. It's an absolute no-brainer. You've got to have something on that seed to manage uh, at least Pythium and Rhizoctonia, and, and I would say there are a tremendous number of products in the cotton realm that can be used to treat that and paying careful attention to how many products are stacked on some of those cotton seed treatments that are available and come, uh, depending upon whichever variety you order, is really important. Um, and at least, like I said, managing Pythium and Rhizoctonia, because in the years that we've done inoculated trials, uh, it, it's amazing to see what the environment can really throw at cotton and making sure that you've got a good seed-applied fungicide on there to protect you against rhizoctonia, because if you plant in front of a rain and it gets cool, you can be in big trouble. Uh, in the years that we've scratched our head looking at plots and thought, uh, uh-oh, I think we screwed something up when we planted. And then we kind of stepped back and said, no, no, we didn't, because we're standing in the border, and the border's there, so that seed-applied fungicide didn't do near as good a job on rhizoctonia as that other one that's behind that. Uh, and that's something that we keep meaning to get on the crop situation blog and have just not spent near the time this time of the year to get some of those information out there. Uh, and that's why we're here today. That's absolutely why we're here today. Uh, the last thing I'll say, cotton is really, as Jason alluded to, the big one when it comes to managing nematodes. There are an increasing number of seed-applied nematicide products. Uh, some are better than others, but you really have to know f- to start with what kind of numbers you're talking about. And I'll be the first person to admit, if you've been planting continuous cotton or you've been planting the crops that would essentially do nothing more than increase something like reniform nematode or root knot nematode, which for reniform would be cotton and soybean would do a really good job in a rotation of doing nothing but increasing the reniform nematode populations. And for root knot, corn, cotton, and soybean will do nothing but increase root knot nematodes. Managing those is difficult with just a seed-applied nematicide. There are plenty of products that are good from an infero standpoint. Aldicarb is still outstanding if you can get a hold of it and if you have the ability. I I was going to mention that. Uh, To make that application because lots of people anymore have gone to larger hoppers and don't necessarily have uh, planter boxes on there anymore for granular applications. But I do know some folks that have went back to it. And it's an outstanding early season insecticide as well. It's still a stellar nematicide. We we put it in as a historical check in all of our plots, and it looks phenomenal year in and year out. Yeah. Uh, And with that said, there are additional infurrow products, but again, not a lot of people have the ability or the experience to do an infurrow application with something like vellum or vellum total. 
uh, really good nematicide products. But with that in mind, if you're going with vellum total, make sure you're looking at your imidacloprid concentration yeah. on the seed before you make that application so that you're not making an off-label application. Yeah, I'll, I'll briefly mention rice. This is more of Jeff Gord's area on the insect management, but uh, I, do, I do help out and dabble a little bit. Uh, typically, we say use something, I mean, because water weevils can, you know, angry for sure reduce yield i mean there's a lot, there's several options out there for you know early season management and and the same goes with the seed applied fungicides choose something that's going to be a good product for planting into cool wet soils so something that's going to manage the pythium and make sure that you're not going to end up with a rhizoctonia issue if the environment changes and it gets warm fast tom as we've been talking this is one question i, I know we've kind of taken more time uh, away from people than we expected to today, but I did have one question. So, big problem that we fight in rice is that we get our crop planted, it cool, it's wet, takes a while for it to come up, and and then we have the seedling disease just crushes us at right. some point. What's the difference between rice and corn that we don't see? I don't ever go in a cornfield with a problem early in the season and say, well, you know, seedling disease jumped all over you, even though we're planting into as cool or cooler soil with corn than we are with rice. And I would almost say cooler in most instances yeah. because you – Yeah, because I mean, it might get, be three weeks earlier. Yeah, if, if you get to the most southern reaches in the Delta down Rolling Fork and south, they tend to plant the last week of February. Now, I really doubt that's going to happen this year in particular just as wet as it Unless is. Unless they do it in a boat. <laughs> Yeah, water seeding corn, probably not as good an idea. Uh, but uh, sitting here trying to address your question, I don't know what the difference is because you're, it's basically they're both grasses, so why is there a difference? Is there a difference in, in vigor? I don't know. I'm fishing here. Well, and that's, that's exactly what I was going to say, Don. You, know, you don't tend to see corn lay in the ground for three weeks before it comes up like you often can no. with yeah, rice. You, you're right. You don't see it struggle to come up like that. No, it, it, you plant corn, it typically shoots straight out of the ground. And we may be I mean, we may be comparing apples and oranges here, I mean, beyond yeah. the fact that they're both grass crops. Uh, I mean, obviously very different, you know, corn being highly engineered like it is. I mean, it pops out of the ground quick well, in most the, cases regardless the, of the plant. The other meat. thing about it, and this may have absolutely nothing to do with it, the starch content of that corn kernel is a lot more than it is on that on the rice grain. Therefore, it may have more energy to come out. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And and the one thing I, I will add that's sort of related to that, the, the hardest part about talking about seed-applied fungicides tends to be everybody wants it to work miracles. That fungicide is only going to be active while that seed and developing seedling are outs are still in the soil once it comes out of the soil that's it see that's what i've been waiting to hear tom say the whole time you, i knew it i knew he would say it eventually i just i didn't know how to so you're saying they're non-systemic yes and that's that's a hard thing to talk about that's one of the things to think about when you're thinking about seed treatments well and and i know every everybody would like to stick a number on there oh our product is as good as this many days well if the seed sits in the ground yeah for there's too, too many long, variables and there's two different directions you can go you can have seed rot in the soil before it ever emerges what people fail to realize sometimes it doesn't matter which 
type of seed treatment you're talking about. When you plant it, the clock starts ticking. That's right. All right, folks, we apologize for taking more time uh, than we normally do today, but I definitely wanted y'all to hear the update on Don's house and pipes <laughs> and yeah. how, how he survived the great freeze of 2021. I'm sure everybody's riveted about that. Uh, you'd be surprised, man. You'd be I'm, surprised. I'm on the edge of my seat. I mean, I haven't been into work recently, so, you know, it's it's a different set of people to actually discuss things with lately. Look for us back again next week, and I'm uh, not sure what we're going to do. we got several things in the works uh, lined up talking to some some of the other folks. Uh, so y'all y'all keep us in mind in the future. And, and, of course, if we can do anything for you, just give us a call. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is produced by the Mississippi State University Extension Service. 